You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Embrace some of your, you know, liberal terrianism. Stay away no, from Matt Damon. Stay away from Matt Damon and Brad Pitt. These Top campaign yet. events are like, they're like concerts, right? So if you go to see a concert and it's like, I don't know, we'll say it's a heavy metal concert and we've got Motley Crue from 1982 and Metallica from 1982 and early Megadeth and at the top of the act is the Bay City Rollers. <laughs> and they, they, they could have all killed it going on here, but when we get to the Bay City Rollers and they start playing S-A-T-U-R-D-A-Y, night, you're already checking out. And Hillary Clinton very much had... This suck the air out of the room when she gets up to be the. I mean, close. you're just not. Gonna, yeah, I mean, the, the Bay City Rollers are just not going to play in the Rust Belt. The moment that John Kerry lost is when he said, uh, "Who among us does not like NASCAR?" So, oh I yeah, mean, there's that. I was trying to think. There was another time where he was talking about riding horses. Very country club. Yeah, I was playing polo the other day. This is Chris Novembrino from Don't Worry About the Government. If you're enjoying what you're listening to right now, you ought to sign up for the premium membership. In addition to getting access to the full archive of Bruce's decade-plus catalog of work, which is voluminous, you'll get member-exclusive premium episodes, even a couple with me. It's a great way to support the show and the awesome work that Bruce is doing. So, make like the Russians and quit Stalin. Sign up for the premium membership today. There's still the debates left and right, but I think it caused such a shock that there's now a kind of meta discussion on both sides. And the, you know, if you're on the GOP side or the pro-Trump side, you would like it to be a conversation about falling in line. Yeah, falling in a shut up. And the best thing you Democrats can do is learn a lesson from what we did here and join us, you know, which is, yeah, that's the, that's the way politics always works. That's going to happen. You know, it's like, it's like, but that's the way, you know. No, but this is really party politics on a whole new level. This is like going to a frat party politics. Like, we are all drinking. You are going to drink. Oh, literally. I mean, you got people yelling at baristas and and the like. So, I mean, it's uh, my name, you know, people telling the Starbucks barista, like, my name is Trump. And I want to hear you call out the name. I mean, if you go back to when we talked in in February. I think we, you know, I, I, there are so many people claiming they called the election right now, right? It would be silly to, to do that because I don't, uh, at no time did I, did I anticipate the exact result. But um, we knew what was going on, I think. The thing that was going on was the heuristics of, of voters making decisions for in kind of gut feeling and small bits of information and I'll fill in the rest, kind of like the way a... Uh, a computer renders a 3D visualization based on a, a 2D picture. It's, I got a small bit of information, I fill in the rest. This guy's God-fearing, he's good, you know, he's one example. Uh, this guy's tough, this one isn't, you know. That's the way a lot of voters make decisions. Um, 
And the way that um, the Democrats were looking at things and analyzing things is much more logical, uh, much more science-based, looking at groups of people. And I think the key issue that happened, you know, once they started breaking people in groups and saying, okay, we have this, we have that. Well, you didn't always have it. And you didn't have it in the numbers that you thought you did. To go too crazy and panic, you're going to lose. You're going to lose because you're going to look phony just as you did. Maybe trying to do a different thing, you're going to look just as phony as some people thought that you did in this campaign. So I think it's be who you are. You know you're a party of cities. You know you're a party of intellectual solutions to problems. Embrace some of your, you know, liberal terrianism that people talk about. Um, I, I think, for instance, if uh, let's say Hillary Clinton had made a definitive statement about legalizing marijuana um, in September, she would have won. I mean, it doesn't have to be an absolute federal legalization. It could have been, I'm going to kick it to the states, and you're not going to see my FDA enforce it, but... There wasn't enough there. I think there probably could have been more of a message in general about what you get for voting for that ticket, and it just didn't happen. And please don't be folksy. We don't want folksy. Stay away from Matt Damon. Stay away from Matt Damon and Brad Pitt, but don't be folksy. Somewhere in the middle. Stop doing the fundraisers with George Clooney. Like, maybe stop doing so many Hollywood fundraisers and go to more fish fries. Somewhere between Joe the Plumber and George Clooney lies the truth. Find it. But don't and also wait and see. Don't be afraid to wait and see. Making drastic changes. But not enough people are talking about the group of voters that I think they should be. All of this talk about Democrats going out to the Rust Belt getting more folksy. Well, that ain't going to work. You know? well, what are you going to sell them? I, I, you know, I, it, it, so Hillary you know Clinton stands up are. there in front of a crowd of white people and goes, I am a white woman. That's not a policy. It's not what you are. It's not who you are. Now, can you do a little less Hollywood? I hope so. You know, a little less. Does everything have to be like look like it's it's coming from California or some kind of idea? You know, can we go from Chipotle back to McDonald's? You know, the way Bill Clinton was. I mean, there's a little bit of tweaking, I think, that's in order and they need to to think about that, I am. I, I would be worried uh, for the Democratic Party about an over uh, overkill, and also trying to read it because that group. If you look at the forty-seven percent, like the Trump voter, a good well, fifteen percent doesn't like them. You know, in that group, so there's a good like kind of core GOP that just pulled the lever for the Republican candidate. Might right. be twenty twenty-five percent. So you've got just like a twenty, a little more than twenty percent that are these hardcore voters and many of them in Rust Belt or or elsewhere. I don't think that's available for the most part. And and anyone making an argument that it is, I think they're limited. I think if the, what you would have to do to reach out to that group would appear phony and would also you'd lose people on the other side. You'd lose this new group that Hillary Clinton's campaign the set. reached out you'd to. Use- Right, you lose my set. I mean, if you're just going and trying to appeal to neoconservatives, right, or to just like the the yeah conservatives or the, the surveying, you know, doing focus groups of Trump voters and finding out what they like. Um, well, that isn't really gonna you know isn't gonna help too much. I think the group that you need to look at is people who voted for Gary Johnson. And yes. it's not as large as Perot was in 1992. 
So it would appear to be less significant. But given the closeness of this election and how close the parties are right now and how polarized things are, you had three and a half uh, – oh, sorry, you had four million people, three and a half percent of the vote um, that that came out for Gary Johnson. So the first the first thing to note is that they came and out and voted. he was a voted. bad candidate. And he, he was not a good libertarian candidate. He, he was inarticulate. Uh, he was goofy. The Aleppo thing hurt him. But, I mean, there are other unforced errors where he couldn't name a world leader or where he sticks out his tongue to that one reporter. Uh, I mean, this guy was a very damaged brand. And yet, as you're saying, 3.5%, 4 million voters, they come out and vote for this guy regardless. And uh, that's why I wouldn't look to him. I wouldn't try to curry his favor. He can endorse you, and it could matter less. I mean, he was kind of a goofball, but... The voters, for, for many of them, I believe, I, I truly believe it was just a name on the ballot. Not all of them, but for many. And they also were not libertarians per se. They never even voted for the Libertarian Party before. We know that because they never got this many votes before. So uh, it's not about Gary Johnson per se, not about libertarianism per se, but that group is the group that either the Democrats or the Republicans too, because I, I guess they're feeling really good, but – I tell you, I, I, you know, Bill Parcells used to yell at his team when they won, but almost lost. You know, and I think if you're the GOP, you got to turn the cannons on yourself a bit too and say, look, at this guy got in with 47%. We're excited that we beat Hillary Clinton and didn't think we would. I get it. But after a certain point, the excitement of the election has to fade and the reality has to come in. And this is really close, almost lost the thing. I'm loath to compare Clinton to Trump. It's just so different. But just in understanding people, at least in the way Trump conducted this election, you know, you do see that similarity that Bill Clinton had a knack for the average voter. There's some rumors that he was, you know, of course, everybody's saying this now that, hey, I was telling them in the Clinton campaign to go to Wisconsin and they told me, oh, Bill, you know, <laughs> but uh, that's the way he thinks. He thinks about those type of voters, which. Uh, I should say the moment that John Kerry lost is when he said, who among us does not like NASCAR? So, oh, I yeah, mean, there's that. I was trying to think. There was another time where he was talking about riding horses or something. Yeah, I mean, very, just, very country club. Yeah, I was playing polo the other day. I mean, this isn't winning over voters. He didn't do that. He just stayed in the ring, won it out in enough states, very, very, very small margins. So small, so minute that I'm also aware that that one counter to all the arguments we're talking, we're making and what everyone's talking about now in, in regards to the Democrats could be, I don't see any reason to change at all. It's too small of a percentage. It's a micro percentage that that you lost the Electoral College by to um, in, in within the states in the Electoral College to even make any corrections. No, I completely understand that argument, and blowing I, on the I, dice. It pains me. No, it pains me to even admit that it's probably right. But I think that the argument's fairly clear that the mistakes in Michigan and Wisconsin are better explained by hubris from the Clinton campaign and just a failure to go out and do the requisite ground game work. We have anecdote after anecdote coming out of Michigan where they did basic things that bungled their way to a loss. And it wasn't like, oh, they got blown out because of messaging or failing to get on message on Detroit. They lost by like 12,000 votes in Michigan. And they weren't doing an earnest get-out-the-vote campaign and left most of the state Democrats to have to try to figure out that mess. So 
yeah, you don't really need to change policies. You just need to reemphasize. I think what is interesting is Pennsylvania, right? Like they dumped a lot of energy into Pennsylvania in the closing days of that campaign. And that wasn't moving the needle. Uh, That, if you were trying to make the argument of there may be something bigger here and part of it may be message, I think Pennsylvania is a good place to point to. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, I was thinking about it. Um, if you actually go to the very small amount of John Edwards supporters in 2005, that's kind of what it, where it was. They really like that one America thing that he was doing. I mean, it's such a small group, though. It's not even worthy of mention. And then, then he had this scandal, which, you know, I was thinking about it um, recently because in the context of, um, you know, I, I don't just look at, at, at Republican scandals, um, although, you know, Republican presidents recently because in the context of um, – I was reading a little bit about the John Edwards thing because I, I think because of the ridiculous of it, it kind of passed through the media because he wasn't going to be president or vice president in any way. It just kind of passed. Crazy thing, especially given the fact that uh, in 2004, right, he was the vice presidential ticket in, two, uh, in 2004. And right. he was really scandal free. This is a very rare case in American history where a guy like becomes the the bad person all after that (laughs) after his time of national prominence so like he wasn't like a bill clinton from all accounts out there you know kind of like womanizing and things like that it was something that totally occurred after his run for the vice presidency yeah and he had managed to keep himself more or less scandal free through his lawyer career which is not always the easiest thing to do yeah, he was, by all accounts, pretty intense, professional person. And although he had this, like, really good looks and charm and was um, uh, starts running on the issue of, of poverty, um, the which is an interesting play, really interesting play for, like, a white guy from North Carolina who – that wasn't how a lot of people saw him um, – Instead he was of working on a little guy sort of thing, like when he would talk about his legal career when he was running in the primaries, Edwards was always emphasizing how he was sticking up for the little guy. And the Two Americas thing was about heavily serviced and underserviced communities inside of America. So it wasn't necessarily a black or white, right or left thing. It was more of a coastal versus middle of the country thing. The cities versus rural thing. Yeah, and oddly enough, I mean, it just screams as this this damaged uh, prophet may have had the message that if, if there is something for the Democratic Party to pick themselves up and for Democrats as a party right now, um, but uh, to the extent that they have to do something different, you, you look in there and you see the, the lost Democratic prophet <laughs> – because uh, he fell in love with his videographer or whatever, that he's that he's uh, really had it. In other words, stop with the identity of who people are and talk about the what. 
what's the situation? And because that can't be argued with. And, and we're not all just, you know, you know, they definitely put him on the ticket in 04 to help, among other things, the Rust Belt. So I was cleaning off my computer last night and getting rid of a lot of the old photos because I have so many photos of just random charts and graphs and things that I grabbed for the show. And I found a really interesting one from right when we first came back on the air after our break. And this is when Jim Gilmore was still in the race. So this is uh, like Gilmore. Oh, I, I know the good old days, right? So this is a great chart. This was familiarity percentage with an opinion to plus minus in terms of net favorables. And way out in front of the pack, right at the beginning, was Donald Trump, who had 95% name recognition, and it was 30% favorable. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Right. Uh, And no one else is even close. Ben Carson had a higher favorable rating, but fewer than 60% knew who he was. Well, one of the things we had said, I think, in our first conversation, maybe in February of this year, I had said that uh, we were talking about Hillary Clinton as a damaged candidate. This was right in the middle of the primary with Sanders. And and I was saying, um, you you can land the plane with turbulence. You can land a plane. You know, you can you can uh, salespeople always say you can make a sale with objections. You almost always do. Asking for getting zero favorables is is impossible. The only thing that changed is I was making that argument about Hillary Clinton. It turned out to be worked for Trump as well. He landed the plane in turbulence. I mean, albeit this crazy landing, you know, with ice on the ground and the the plane almost going in the water, right? But he made the landing, it looks like anyway. So we'll we'll see. But um, I think that the favorability is was not as important. Name recognition was important for him in a um, beating all those clowns in the primary, and then uh, b uh, maintaining a level that he was always, while not presidential or favorable, he was always seen as a force that merited news coverage. He right, was, and I also uh, think it, it it dictated a little bit that you can't. You can't dictate his first impression because people already have a first impression of him. So a lot of the classic media style framings of mm-hmm. candidates where they become your first impression of Ben Carson, your first impression of Mike Huckabee or Scott Walker or Bobby Jindal, people you've never heard of. You couldn't do that with Trump. Right. And uh, I think that... Um 
you, he was always a big person. I mean, that's the best I'll say. I'm not going to say like he always looked presidential because we know that's not the case. And again, when you when you win an election with 15 percent saying that they didn't like you, of course, that was that was like nine or 10 percent. Hillary voted same thing. Um, it's difficult to say that you looked presidential, but you were always big, much bigger than those other guys in the primary. Absolutely. Much bigger than Jeb Bush. Jeb Bush seemed small. Um, so never afraid to forcefully attack and and advocate for his issues. Um, there's a guy. And he attacked the right people early on. Trump came into the race and he immediately started attacking Jeb. And and I have heard people who said that who weren't necessarily big GOP supporters, but might have been men who leaned towards Republicans. You know, I always felt that Bill Clinton got some of those guys, but Obama off and on got them. And now some of them went for Trump. And, and one of the things that I heard was, you know, he was a non-evangelical, non-religious figure in the mm-hmm. GOP party. And for some northern Democrats, uh, I'm sorry, for some northern Republicans, that was always a difficult part. And it, it was it was some of the stuff that has come out of the GOP recently, even in George W. Bush's 2004 campaign. A lot of that was about like faith and, you know, the president. Uh, maybe maybe he wasn't like the God emperor. Right. But he was uh, he was seen as the man of faith. Like, who's your in 2000 when he ran? Who's your favorite political person? They asked uh, George Bush, your favorite philosopher. Says, yeah. Who's your favorite says, philosopher? Jesus. Jesus Christ. You know, <laughs> certainly wasn't like Michelle Picot. You know, it was like Jesus Christ, you know. And by the way, I use that because you're hearing a lot about post-truth. And I always think people should look back. And there was a lot of this kind of post-truthy stuff going on all the time. All the time. It's not just new with when you were asked about a political philosopher. You're saying, Jesus Christ, we know you're targeting a certain group. I think at the same time that helped them, it turned off a group. What's that group? Midwest Republicans, uh, Ohio Republicans. I mean, George Bush won Ohio, but other other groups. And I think that Pennsylvania Republicans might have been turned off by the religious part of the GOP party. And this is what a fellow explained to me. I don't like to do a survey of one, but it was kind of illuminating. I think some of it is 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 going on the broad population is that, uh, hey, he got rid of the official GOP establishment and he got rid of the religious part of the Republican Party. Now, I didn't get rid of him, but he, no, he put him at the back of the bus, though. I think that's fair to say. Put him at the back of the bus. They're going to be a factor. They're going to be his, his biggest opponents and uh, sometimes friends, sometimes fair weather friends in the next in the next year. We'll see what happens with that. I think Trump has been fairly savvy in a certain way with the way he is staffing out his cabinet because he's got Mike Pence as a bit of a firewall for the soon to be nagging voices of the religious right. But then he also picked Elaine Chow, which most people are not latching onto this week in all of the campaign picks but mm-hmm. chow's a really interesting choice because she's married to mitch mcconnell who has been lukewarm as all get out when it comes to anything involving donald trump so when trump shows up to the senate floor with his big infrastructure package how is mcconnell going to really vote against it when it's his wife <laughs> who's going to be in charge of administering it 
Well, I obviously think that's part of the strategy, isn't it? <laughs> I, I think uh, no. I think it's it's smart. That 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 yeah. smacks abandon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that. Uh, so Obama had chosen, you know, Ray LaHood for transportation. That was his one of his Republican choices. So you do try to reach out to Congress on that one because it's going to be involve a lot of spending that must come from there, and. Uh, the infrastructure plan um, will be interesting uh, because Congress loves infrastructure, so it's a possible way to get an early win. Oh, but yeah, I think the Democrats are going to come in here and they're going to saddle it up with all sorts of stuff. I think they're going to make the package nauseating, and I think Trump will break. Is it called the Hastert rule where you have to try to win the vote with your party primarily? Right, you have that- to you have to um, win. The, there has to be right. You have to win within the party. Yeah, it, it's it's more common in the past to get votes from Democrats and Republicans when you want something, and I think that this GOP Congress has, and the the one that preceded it before the the interregnum with the Democrats in two thousand six to to uh, two thousand ten. Um, have had this rule where it's basically lockstep and they're pretty disciplined. You got to give them credit, you know, politically for that pretty disciplined group, uh, hard to phase them. But in the past, it was much more common for somebody who had an issue, say the issue was, um, I want to, uh, I was discussing on my show recently, I want to eliminate the electoral college. You know, he was getting Republicans and Democrats to, to, to do that. And the house vote comes from both parties and, Speaking time is, is there's there's people for it and against it from different parties. You don't see as much of that anymore. And you, I'm no. not sure what will happen in this Congress. It, it's possible that on certain very partisan issues where there is disagreement with President Trump that you would see um, him lose votes and they won't hold. They won't make it a party issue. You know, is Paul Ryan always going to make everything a party issue? That's a good question. You know, um, and how much Bo- leverage does Paul Ryan have? Uh, does he really want to publicly be fighting with the president? Uh, it's a, those, these are these are things that are going to play out, but it d- does depend on the issue. If you're talking about an infrastructure bill, I think it's a great way for everybody to get an easy win because Republicans love roads and democrats got cities with a lot of streets so <laughs> um and and democrats have cities with airports that are bringing in people to spend money and, and trump wants to dump money into laguardia and schumer's already like yes let's let's definitely dump money into laguardia but you're going to see there if you get something passed early there's no one now in the democratic party running a total campaign if someone was running a total campaign they'll say don't give them anything right withhold it's not going to happen because congress people are still representing states and districts they, they don't want it for this abstract idea of denying him a win deny him the votes for this they love infrastructure so does the, so does the gop without admitting that they have to say they don't like the deficit and everything like that someone asked me which would you rather have house or senate as a president i would always say senate if you can only oh, pick yeah. one. if you can only pick one i mean they can't originate money bills but who cares that's that's another you can work that out with the house but the the they can't originate other legislation and they can block everything so I think where he doesn't have friends is there, and you'll see if he reaches out. But this is where I have to go to when I see the behavior on the tweeting. This doesn't sound like somebody who's working out his 
problems that he has. You know, it doesn't seem like somebody who's getting in. You know, Ronald Reagan spent a good portion of his time during his transition working with Washington, getting to know the establishment as much as he ran against the establishment. He 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 went to Washington and got to know the 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 people and the power centers and talk to people, including Democrats. He had to because Democrats had the House at that time. This idea of tweeting about Saturday Night Live, you know, we seem to be getting a little off the gate. Now, I know that that criticism could have been said about him for the past two years, and he still is going to be president. So I I don't know. This idea that he's turning the corner, I, I think that the pressure of being in the big seat is going to get to him because he was able to run his campaign the way he wanted to run his campaign. There are all these normative conventions and things that you're supposed to do, conventional wisdoms that you're supposed to follow when you're running a campaign. And he didn't really have to follow any of them because they're just like their thought processes. And he was just like, nope, I'm doing it my way. But he's going to find out that as president, nope, I'm doing it my way is much less applicable than it is on the campaign trail because there's certain things that are going to be like, no, I'm sorry, sir, you have to be here right now. We don't think it's safe or you can't go back to Trump Tower for the weekend, sir. There's going to be a lot of that. Or, sir, the ambassador from Japan is calling in from Kyoto. He really wants to speak to you. Trump's going to actually have to follow the normative rules, and I think it's going to get to him. I think that's going to be stressful for him. It'll be stressful. I think the the idea I've heard a lot that the office will change him. It's true in history that offices have changed presidents in dramatic ways. It's not um, it's not inevitable though, and I'm not sure if the office will change him. I think he'll keep fighting it. I think he'll keep doing what he's doing. I think he'll keep tweeting. I think he'll keep doing unusual moves. The fact that he picked up the the call with the president of Taiwan just just signals that I'm going to do this my way. Uh, There were times when presidents stayed in the White House and never went out. There were times when presidents never visited another country. These are not possible anymore because some presidents decided to change the office in a way. And uh, certainly the use of a different form of media, like in this case Twitter, by a president, you know, is is not unprecedented. And... uh, so I could I could certainly see him doing it. And the question of whether it will work for him or not, I'll just leave to the future. You know, objectively speaking, it doesn't, uh, you know, it just seems to be many bad sides to it. But uh, Well, Bruce, it's been great talking with you today. Where can people find more My History Can Beat Up Your Politics? www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com or just go to iTunes and run a search for My History Can Beat Up your politics. Don't worry about the government. Our homepage is at don'tworry.tv. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching for Don't Worry About the Government. Follow the show at DWATG. Follow me at C-H-R-I-S-N-O-V-E-M-B-R-I-N-O. We've got a lot of great guests coming on here in the next few weeks. I'm very excited. A lot of good stuff as we close out 2016. Be busy, but I'm also going to be taking a break somewhere in the middle of the month here. So we're going to get a lot of stuff out, and then you're probably not going to see us until the year-end show. Just a heads up, everyone. I want to thank you guys so much for listening. For Stephen Thomas, I'm Chris Novembrino. And until the next one, bye-bye.
Hello all, Eric Rivenus with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow.